Word of God says in Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 19, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we'd like to call today's episode, The Finger of God. The Finger of God. Uh, in the sports world, you'll read many a headline that praises perhaps the arm of a quarterback or the hand of a goalkeeper, the brain of a manager or a coach. But let's be honest, you almost never see a finger as the attribute which is praise. In fact, usually if a finger is mentioned, it's related to some vulgar, inappropriate response of an athlete. If I come home and tell my wife that someone gave me the finger, well, I'm not praising their antics or their abilities. But today, today as we dive into this third plague, uh, it is indeed a finger that is going to be praised. It's the finger of God. And it's not just a finger that's going to be praised. It's a finger that is a catalyst for change, not only in Egypt's situation, but ultimately in our life still today to the glory and praise of God. Um, as we go into this passage, there's four things I'd like to unpack. Um, just think of it even as unpacking a suitcase. And what we want to do as we come to this text is unpack the text. And the four things is we want to unpack the attack. We want to unpack the acknowledgement. We want to unpack the attributes. And finally, we'll unpack the application. So let's start off by unpacking the attack, which is going on. Um, this is not a mere continuation of the past uh, plagues we've seen, the water turning to blood and then the, the frogs on the land. But rather, notice even how this starts out. Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth. I want us just to notice that there is an act involved. It's not the mere result of something else going on. And as we unpack the attack, we really need to talk a little bit about this word used in the ESV at least, gnats, gnats. The word gnats in the text is not specific. And just like with the frogs, we, we saw that in Hebrew, it's more like the croakers. It's just a very kind of a vague term. Same thing here. The idea is small flying things, technical, right? Um, but it, it's limited in scripture to six different uses. Five of them are right here. And then there's one over in Psalm 105, which is speaking of this same plague. So really, this word is used in correlation with this event in history, this event in Scripture. Um, So-called scholars, they love to uh, discuss this word and give their valued opinions. Some suggest it's mosquitoes. Some suggest it's stinging gnats, which would molest the people and beasts by flying into their eyes, up their nose, into their uh, ears, whatever it might be, driving them to madness, right? Um, Sir Samuel Baker 
thought it might be a terrible tick which lives in the hot sand in the dust and it preys on the blood of animals um which is like actually just the size of a grain of sand do we know what it is no i'll tell you what comes to my mind right away um there's this flying whatever you want to call it insect in the bahamas called noceum noceum now you might think noceum is some kind of very scientific term just stop break it down the etymology of the word noceum noceum you don't see them <laughs> exactly noceum that's i believe where the name comes from but uh man when i was there just recently we had to bathe our bodies in deet or some organic equivalent of it and i'm telling you whatever i put on my body it, it did not ward off the noceums it was like a golden corral buffet they all were coming to to take part um but a fun fact if you like chocolate don't just down the noceums because noceums actually um uh, help pollinate cocoa beans. So there is a positive element to these noceums. So are they gnats? Are they sand fleas? Are they mosquitoes? Are they noceums? Well, according to Dr. Fruchtingbaum, that is a real guy, by the way. Great last name. Not my last name. Wish it was. But Dr. Fruchtingbaum, he suggests it's a mixture of many insects. So maybe it's all of the above. I don't know. But KJV translates it lice, um, most translate it gnats, the amplified version um, says stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the ground, it'll become biting gnats, lice throughout the land of Egypt. So what's the point? The point is we've got a lot of different opinions for this one word. I share that with you because I want you as you come to the text of scripture to dive in, to look into these words and realize it's not sometimes just as uh, straightforward as it might seem. But there is, there are some more details which we can use, which I do believe will be helpful in understanding more what is going on. What do we know? Well, we know the source. The source is, we see here, that they come from the dust of the earth. At least that's what's struck. Um, it's not the waters. We also see their positioning. Where are they positioning themselves? Well, on man and on beast in verse 17. They're on man and on beast. That doesn't typically describe gnats. And then what is the actual word used? I, I've referred to the word. I've discussed what people think of the word, but the word itself. This word, um, kane, uh, it has in it the sense of fastening or infixing its sting. And it's only used in the plural, by the way. So you don't see the singular of it, which makes sense. We never say, I have a louse. No, we say, I have lice. Um, and, and so you kind of understand that whatever it is, it's plural. There's many of them. But it does come from a root word, which means to make firm, to fix, to establish. So it would seemingly be that which... Uh, plants itself, not something which is transient necessarily, like perhaps a mosquito um, or mm, a gnat or whatever, more like a tick. So that being said, I hope you just get kind of get the understanding of what we're speaking of here. But what we also need to unpack as we think about um, this word being used is the very Egyptian deities it would attack regardless of whether it was a gnat, a mosquito, a noceum, or whatever, a stinging tick. Um, you see, there were Egyptian gods that were humiliated also in this episode, in this plague. Um, there's the god Geb, who's the Egyptian earth god. There's Set, uh, the god of the desert. There's Chem, uh, the name given to the soil. 
and dirt was considered sacred as well. Um, it was, of course, a good source of food. And now that very dust of the ground, that which they saw as sacred, has become a source of disgust, of disdain, of dis- disappointment, of discomfort, of disillusionment. And yet it's right there that I just want to pause because is this not what God desires to do in our life? Does he not want to um, turn that which we're relying on other than him to a place of disdain so that we might understand the emptiness of these gods that we might seek to serve? Um, The destination of our gods, little g, is the same thing. It's utter failure. It's disappointment and disillusionment at the end. That's the pride we have in achievements, the glory we take in possessions and, and position, the plaudits of man. You see, the Egyptian soil has gone from being a source of comfort to a curse. Um, It was infested with these lice, whatever we want to say. Once, which was a nation's security, has now not only become an insecurity, it's become a very source of sorrow. Um, And so it's fascinating. It's also fascinating because back in Egypt, uh, in in Egyptian, (laughs) Abba in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 8, verse 1, says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. That's what was supposed to be happening. They were supposed to let the children go, children of Israel go, so they could serve the Lord. But notice, since Egypt would not let Israel worship the true God, well, God's plagues are now keeping Egypt from worshiping their gods. Um, and this is just a, a beautiful flip that's happening And we'll see this develop even more as we go. Um, I want to make mention of something else that we see in this text. And when I say in this text, I'm not talking about verses 16 through 19 of chapter 8. I am speaking of the entire plagues uh, being poured out on Egypt. I want you to understand that there is a picture of decreation going on as well. I'm not going to go into this too much. Um, A commentator named John Currid does a good job of laying it out but for instance you know day one when god created the world he separated light from darkness and of course ninth plague lights blotted out um day two he gathers the water into one place water turns to blood god creates the world he makes vegetation grow on the land we see the destruction of egypt's crops um god creates the world day four he puts two great lights in the sky of course the sun ceases to shine Um, When God creates the world on day five, he makes the waters swarm with creatures of the sea. The first and second plagues end with the death of fish and frogs. And then when God creates the world, he made land, animals, and people. In the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth plagues, man and beasts are afflicted with pestilence and disease until finally the the strike of of God um, on that Passover night when God kills every firstborn son in Egypt. I'm just putting that out there for you to think about. Uh, this is not the only time in Scripture where we we see a mirrored image of um, creation or decreation, uh, but it's just something worth considering as you're studying the Scriptures and what's in there. Well, that's for you to go to the Word of God and see for yourself. So we're unpacking this attack, but we also need to unpack, secondly, the acknowledgement. The acknowledgement that goes on in this portion when you come to... Verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger 
of God. Isn't that interesting? This is the finger of God. This is their acknowledgement. Now, is their acknowledgement a true acknowledgement in worship, or is it uh, an excuse? Um, in other words, they're acknowledging that there's a supernatural component of this plague. Um, and, and that's interesting, because many modern-day commentators want to rationalize the reason behind the plagues and give of course you know this happened because this happened it's the time of years rainy season is a flood dead frogs they bring out these lice to whatever the case is okay so you've got all these reasons people bring out but the the magicians didn't think so they said this is the finger of god this is the direct intervention of god um, and these magicians are the first to begin to acknowledge the God of Israel not necessarily as the God Almighty but the God of Israel now, we need to take note, and this is very important, that the magicians do not say, this is the finger of the Lord. Uh, rather, they say, this is the finger of God. And they use the word Elohim, plural, which means more than man, but it's not exclusive. It's not uh, like the only God. Not worthy of complete surrender, just that this is a source more powerful than ourselves. And so this is the finger of God. That's why I say, is it an excuse or is it actually a true acknowledgement? Um, an excuse as in, well, this is one of the gods acting up. Or is it acknowledgement saying, this is God's finger. You need to pay attention here. Um, Alfred Edersheim um, said this, the power was, their power was foiled. But to neutralize the impression, they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of Elohim the result of the power of a God. And so we see that even though God is showing um, his, his power, his, uh, his divinity, we still see a resistance going on. And this lines up with, you know, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And it ends with, so they are without excuse. So they are without excuse. But... There's another element that's very interesting uh, when it comes to the worship going on in Egypt at that time. You see, there was a priestly judgment being poured out as this plague happens. And what do I mean? Well, in a very unique way, the priests were targeted. For an Egyptian priest, cleanliness was not just highly valued. It was essential, and they, they took great pride in their, in their physical purity. And they were known for that. In fact, there's a whole group of priests that was known. They were they were known as the pure ones. And uh, I believe it was three times. Um, no, no, not sorry, not three times. Every three days, they would shave their um, their body from head down to foot, um, just to make sure that um, no vermin, no insects, whatever the case is, could attach themselves to their body. In other words, they wanted to be clean. And then they would dress in these beautiful uh, linen robes. And and why? Well, because their purity was this external form where they would get the, the pleasure and the, um, the approval of man. But what is God doing? God is literally stripping the priesthood from their presentation, from being able to 
uh, lead worship to, to, to bring others into the presence of these false gods to do their sacred duties. So because Egypt wouldn't let Israel worship as they were, well, now God is pulling back their worship of their, um, of their false gods. This is encouraging because it's encouraging just to recognize this is the love of God. God is not being hateful and keeping them from worshiping. He's being loving. Whenever God keeps us from pursuing the false gods, the idols of this world, that is God in his love saying, I want to draw you to myself. But I have to also ask the question, are we part of any religious systems that keep others from the true focus of worship, Jesus Christ? And when I say religious systems, I don't mean religious systems as in a certain religion of the world like Buddhism or Hinduism or Shintoism or Islam. Uh, that's not what I'm referring to. I'm talking about religious systems as in even that which... Uh, which holds a place in our heart that only God deserves. It could be something uh, as as subtle as um, the the pursuit of possessions, as athletics, as what anything that keeps others from the focus of worship, Jesus Christ. Um, and so, keep these things in mind as we unpack the attack and also this acknowledgement. But we're not quite done with the finger of God. Obviously, it's the name of the episode, but we want to dive into it a bit more. And let's look at the attributes. Let's unpack the attributes. Um, When we say the attributes, well, we are referring specifically to the attributes of God in relation to the finger of God. See, after 2,500 years of biblical history or recorded human history up to this point, This is the first time that we are seeing a finger mentioned in Scripture, and I think that's noteworthy. But there's also a metaphorical value to it. You see, a finger can point out things. If I'm using my finger, it is indicating for you to look somewhere, or it could be a parent um, giving a command. It can accomplish other things like typing or texting or identifying a person. Contrast the finger with the arm or the hand. Um, The arm or the hand typically indicates strength, um, a strength to destroy or a strength to save. But the finger, the finger of God. Well, let's consider for a moment the finger of God from uh, the bottom of the sea to the vastness of the cosmos, okay? Um, Have you ever heard of the Japanese pufferfish? If you haven't, you are in for a treat. What an outstanding fish and a phenomenal artist, which was created by the Almighty God. In 1995, divers um, were discovering these very ornate and spectacular designs on the sea floor, on the ocean floor. And these geometric formations would come and then they would go. And it was a, a mysterious occurrence. And for more than a decade, there was confusion as to their origins. But they were likened as to underwater crop circles. I like that. Underwater crop circles. That is, um, until one day the Japanese pufferfish was finally discovered as it did its covert work of attracting their mate. Now, a Japanese pufferfish is only about five inches long, but this five-inch artist uses only its head and its fins, and it plows the sand and sculpts the seafloor into a perfectly patterned spaced geometric shapes. Now, now I'm telling you, this is a very impressive work. Um, in fact, if uh, me as a six foot 
man did a similar design in proportion to their five inch body, it would be as though I did a 86 foot in diameter sculpture. And considering the tides and the natural predators that they also have to simultaneously face, wow, the finger of God is so evidenced in the work through this Japanese pufferfish. It takes this little guy an entire week of 24-hour days to finish the work of its creation. And then to top things off, if all of that is not enough, and if that does not create a marvel in your spirit about our great God who spoke into existence the Japanese pufferfish, this little small fish will decorate various cross sections of his masterpiece with seashells just to enhance the effect. There's some fabulous videos online where you can see exactly what I'm speaking of, but wow, the finger of God on the bottom of the sea. But now let's go to the vastness of the cosmos and think about the finger of God there, the finger of God. Um, when I think about the, the vastness of the cosmos and, um, and all we have there, wow, uh, there just recently came out all the images from the web um, the Webb Telescope, is that what it was called? The Webb Near-Infrared Camera um, that NASA put out. And um, in this mosaic image they released, um, it stretches 340 light years across. And it includes tens of thousands of never-before-seen young stars that previously were shrouded in cosmic dust. But now um, they emerge from this dusty cocoon of the nebula because the, the, the camera that this particular telescope has is able to detect these dust and shrouded stars. And wow, the glory of the image that we see. In fact, the NASA administrator, Bill Nelson, during the press conference where they were releasing these images said this, if you held a grain of sand on the tip of your finger, at arm's length, that is the part of the universe you're seeing. Just one speck. You get that? A grain of sand at the tip of your finger at arm's length. And that is how much of the universe you're seeing. Now, I, I believe you're probably seeing way less than that. But then he went on. You're seeing galaxies that are shining around other galaxies whose light has been bent. You're seeing just a small little portion of the universe. A hundred years ago, we thought there was only one galaxy. Now that number is unlimited. And in our galaxy, we have billions of stars and suns. And there are billions of galaxies with billions of galaxies and suns. Why do I share this? Well, the finger of God. You know, the magicians may have declared this is the finger of a god, but whatever they declared, Pharaoh didn't buy it, or Pharaoh didn't embrace it. And we certainly see Pharaoh did not step off the throne. But I'm not worried about Pharaoh right now. I'm asking about you. Do you not see the finger of God in all creation? As Romans 1 says, we are without excuse. God's finger is shown across this world. The smudges of his fingerprints are seen on every detail of creation from my 11-month-old daughter's face to, yes, the stars in the heavens. Steve Green wrote a song which really encapsulates 
just the the heart behind what we're sharing right now and, and it also encapsulates the hardness of man's hearts the song starts out all across the world people everywhere ask how can i believe in a god i cannot see if there really is a god why is there so much pain if i could only see then i'd believe and then the song goes on to say oh if you could only see that his love is written all across the sky as brilliantly the stars all testify for the glory of the god who reigns on high is displayed in the world he has made and as all creation seems to shout and sing in wonder of the one almighty king his signature can easily be seen on everything but then it goes on to say this take a minute now and i want to challenge you take a minute now take a minute now and look around can you believe that everything you see took place by chance the intricate design down to the last detail and what about the mystery that cuts us like a knife what is the source of life and then it goes back to saying his love is written all across the sky. My friends, the finger of God, will you respond to it? Unlike Pharaoh, who chose to reject it and will have more of God's wrath poured out, not only on him, but on his people and his land? You know, in Scripture, the finger of God is, is used to communicate a few different things. I, I want to give you four things that the finger of God is used in Scripture to, to communicate or demonstrate the first is uh, God's communicating power. God's communicating power. We see this in Exodus 31, verse 18, where in the cloud and the smoke of Sinai's peak, God used his finger, it says, to pen the law. God communicated his power with his finger. God's communicating power. And then we see, secondly, we see God's creative power. God's creative power is displayed through his finger. And where? In Psalm 8, in Psalm 8, verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. That's what I just spoke about with this web telescope and the images we've seen. God's creative power. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. But then we also see not just his communicating power, his creative power, we see his controlling power. That's in Luke chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, specifically verse 20. But verse 19 says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. And look at verse 20. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of of God has come upon you. Uh, his controlling power. God controls. God is in control. And finally, there's one more element we see with his finger in Scripture, and that is God's compassionate power. God's power to show compassion to guilty sinners like me and also like you. Whatever you've done, God's compassionate power is revealed through his finger. We see this in John chapter 8, verse 6. And what goes on is the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And yeah, the man's not brought into the situation. We know he was guilty too. But they throw this woman before Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He says, let the first without sin 
or let the one without sin cast the first stone. Of course, one by one, stones are dropped. But what is Jesus doing during that time? He gets down on the ground in the dust of the ground, in the dirt, in the sand, and he takes his finger and he writes. It's the only time in Scripture it's recorded Jesus Christ writing something. I don't know what he wrote. Scholars, again, love to guess. I'm not going to. I just know that he used his finger. And in that scene of using his finger, he showed his compassionate power. As the crowds left, he was left with the woman alone. And he said, he asked, where are those who condemn you? And she says, or who is, I guess he says more, who is there who condemns you? And, and she says, no one. And then Jesus says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. See, God's compassionate power revealed through his finger. But the final thing we want to unpack is the application. Where do we go from here? What do we take with us? Well, you can note that the last phrase um, of this of this little portion in verse 19 is, as the Lord had said, and what comes before it, it says, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is that final time. It's only used four times. And the final time is here. In Exodus 7.13, we saw still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. In Exodus 7.22, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. In Exodus 8.15, but when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And in Exodus 8.19, here we have it, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I'm not going to go back into the hardness of heart. You can go back to episode 22 and the whole episode is just about Pharaoh's hard heart. But what I do want to go into is your heart. See, it says, as the Lord had said. Well, the Lord said many things. And one thing he has clearly said is that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Romans chapter 1 tells us that we are not only without excuse, but those who refuse God's working are those who suppress the truth. So where are you in all of this? See, the magicians were happy to equate whatever was happening with something divine. But what we can see is Pharaoh and apparently Egypt were unwilling to repent and really turn to the true Lord God. See, Pharaoh took advice from the magicians when it lined up with his preferences. But here, when it doesn't line up with his ideology, his worldview, or his preferences— uh, we see him happier simply to silence what they're saying. God's finger was more than enough to silence the magicians. And let me tell you, God's finger is more than enough to silence anyone today as well. But will you respond? Will you quiet your hearts and respond to the one who in compassion has pursued you so that you might forever not only enjoy him, but be with him where he is. This is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is that we are condemned sinners in our flesh, but Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners like you, like me, and even like Pharaoh. For whoever 
will confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, will be saved. We'll get into more elements of both the depravity in Egypt, but also the salvation of the Lord as we continue this journey through the plagues in the book of Exodus. But for now, we are out of time. I encourage you to go to our website at www.intoyourbible.org and check out uh, show notes and other um, resources we have for you there. And I pray they can be a blessing uh, to you. Also, please share, share the YouTube page, share these resources with others so that they too can uh, glean um, these lessons from God's word. And remember, this has been Into Your Bible. And this is a place where we seek a generation who loves the word of God and the God of the word. Thanks for listening to Into Your Bible, the podcast, an extension of the ministry of Rock International. This is a place where we dive into the Holy Bible, seeking a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Wherever you listen, subscribe to not miss an episode. And if you want to take things a step further, leave a review so others can find it too. For free resources, show notes, and more, check out our website at www.intoyourbible.org. Until next time, keep diving in.